Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Struggle Session. I'm Leslie the Third, and today we're doing a special Struggle Session radio episode once again. And of course, Jack is not joining me because he has um, no taste in music whatsoever. Um, like the the closest he gets to having a taste in music is when the um, that new Star Wars trailer came out and they played Duel of the Fates during it. And Jack, and you know, that triggered something in Jack. Of course, it had more to do with like his love of prequels than instead of his appreciation for like the uh, texture of the orchestral sounds of John Williams. So I don't really think that counts as having taste in music, but I'm still looking. I'm still trying to find a struggle session radio episode for Jack to come on where I can talk about his music because frankly, He's still getting paid for these shows I'm doing without him. He's just sitting, he's right now, he's just sitting at his house, chilling on a Friday night. I'm the one that's working, and this dude is still collecting the check. I don't know. But I do. Is he have- like the mayor? Is he like the mayor in Footloose? <laughs> he would ban music. Legally. No, no, he he listens to music. He just didn't really have a taste. Like he'll just mm. put like on the Beatles and like that's oh, it, or he'll put on like terrible. a Kanye playlist and that's it. So he doesn't have any strong opinions about music, I should say. But he does enjoy it. He does enjoy it. And as you hear, we have a special guest today. It's been way, way, way too long since I've had him on. This is one of my favorite dudes in the world, Nando Vila. Thank you so much for coming back on. Thanks for having me. I mean, how long ago was I on the show? Was that like two or three years ago? It was two years. It was at least two years ago. It was like one, you were one of our very first guests. Wow. I'm so sorry for not having you on. Uh, no, again I've been sooner. I've been watching uh, your guys' success, your guys' success uh, with great interest, and I'm you know I basically I'm, I'm I'm willing to sit here and take all the credit because if it wasn't for that, you know, yes. when, when before you guys were big, I was like one of the early guys. Uh, yes, you know, you uh, were a get for us for real, <laughs> for real. <laughs> uh, man, I just uh, thank you so much for coming back on. Love talking to you, man. And today we're talking about something I love talking about. My favorite band in the whole, whole wide world, the Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, Man, yeah. I, I don't even know where to start with the Smashing Pumpkins. They are, they are it for me, have always been it for me since I first heard them. I guess maybe I can start there. Uh, let me ask you first. When did you first hear the Smashing Pumpkins, man? So I was generally a fan of alternative rock music in that era in the early 90s. I mean, that was the music that I came of age with. I mean, yeah. um, I'm probably a little older than most of the Struggle Session listeners. I mean, I'm guessing you guys are all get just a bunch of teens, right? In their underwear, <laughs> yeah. like every Struggle Session listener. Um, I'm in my mid-30s. So really growing up in America in, in the early 90s, uh, that was it. That was, I mean, I was, I was knee deep in all of that shit. I was Pearl Jam, Nirvana, you know, all the grunge, all the grunge bands, all the yeah, yeah. hard alternative bands. And, and Smashing Pumpkins was, was, um, it, I mean, it got lumped in with, the, with those guys, even though I, I mean, we could talk about that also, but yeah, I, they're not really the same style, but they were kind of lumped in with them. But I remember seeing them on SNL, um when i was a kid when we used to like uh you know stay up late and watch snl and and they did and they did an snl episode um and played chair of rock uh and i, I you know I, mean, I thought that was just like the coolest song yeah. um 
but yeah, I mean, I was, I was in it from, yeah, basically like, the, the, you know, 93, 94. That was, that was, that's when I was, when I was big. I remember being really excited when Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness came out, which I guess was 95. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was already like in, you know, when, what, by the time that, that album came out, which obviously was, huge one of the biggest albums of the decade yeah yeah uh, i think it went down as the best-selling double album of all time because the wall technically is not a double album it's not interesting yeah uh but i think they were usurped by garth garth brooks uh live album a little bit later <laughs> but for a minute they're biggest selling great double album of all time but so when I, I was like you, I was, you know, immersed into the alternative because that's what was going on. Like, and I actually came kind of late to the Smashing Pumpkins relative to the other bands. Like I knew Nirvana, I knew Soundgarden, I knew Stone Temple Pilots. I think I may have even known like Marilyn Manson mm. before I got too into the Smashing Pumpkins. I heard, I know I heard today on the radio, but I thought it was The Cure. I thought I, not, Interesting. not not today. Um, the what's the, the really sad disarm disarm disarm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I yeah. thought disarm was a cure song. Interesting. <laughs> That's yeah. interesting, and and that that actually makes sense because I feel like whereas um you know the other like the Seattle the Seattle bands you know Pearl Jam Soundgarden Alice in Chains Nirvana um really came from a more hardcore background like more punk bank background. Yeah. Um, or a more classic rock background. This, the Pumpkins really had a a more of a sort of glam rock uh, alternative sound, which the Cure. I mean, basically, they, the Cure was like definitely like their biggest kind of proto Smashing Pumpkins band. Yeah, if you go back to the earliest Smashing Pumpkins stuff, it's just like post punk stuff. It's yeah. just it's just the Cure. It's just yeah. Joy Division. They're early. Yeah. It's stuff. Maybe a little bit of shoegaze, you know, yeah. tossed in there. But that's what they were. That's kind of what they were listening to even though billy corgan himself actually in his heart of hearts was like a more of like a heavy metal like Ozzy oh, yeah. osborne type guy that's why they have solo smashing pumpkins have like solos and shit when a lot yeah. of the other like the grunge bands like that wasn't cool to do yeah. uh back then they were they were uh he, billy corgan always wanted to be kind of a guitar hero uh yeah. for lack of a better term but yeah when when the first song i really remember hearing and it hidden me um was um the world is a vampire which of course mm. name is bullet with butterfly but, but, yeah. but everybody called it the world is a vampire back then that's what you wrote on your little uh tape i remember yeah, I taped, you downloaded on napster as that you know yeah yeah i <laughs> i remember taping that song off the radio it was uh, off our alternative rock radio i think it was wtgr the tiger 91.1 i think is what i got it off of and i just <laughs> listened to that song over and over again and then because they, that album was coming out they started playing some of their old songs again and then when i heard cherub rock then that mm. was it that was yeah. it for me i think i think so it was both of us the same song i was a couple years later but yeah, yeah. That, that when i heard cherub rock i was like what the fuck is this how how I, like i still to this day listen to that song and hear new stuff um, oh, yeah. in it because uh in, in, for people who don't know uh when they were recording siamese dream they layer would layer like 20 30 guitars on top of <laughs> each other for each uh each track uh yeah. just because they could and it created this you know really like blistering sound that even though it was lumped in with grunge sounded really nothing like it for the most part oh yeah totally i mean that's that's a good point the 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 layering of the guitars is really kind of the quintessential 
Pumpkins innovation in music. I feel like the you know, which is weird because a lot of their a lot of their more well known hits, um, you know, Bullet Butterfly Wings or 1979 or Tonight Tonight or even Disarm or whatever, they, they don't really they're not really indicative of the quintessential Smashing Pumpkins yeah. sound, right? Which really is like a Cherub Rock. Like Cherub Rock is the er uh, Smashing Pumpkins song, and like there's plenty other ones that are kind of more similar to that than some of their more well-known hits, which is kind of an interesting dynamic that they have. Um, and yeah, and that's the thing. They do have, like, because they have so many diverse influences, they have a real diversity of sound. Like, there's mm. so many different, like, you can, they're like, they've done country songs, right? Yeah. They've done, they've done like, every single genre of guitar music they have dabbled with i remember even that one live show uh billy corgan would play like dmx songs sometimes <laughs> just like a that's cultural bit. appropriation a little bit yes we'll get to <laughs> how problematic billy corgan is in, in a little bit yeah i mean no the uh i mean one of their biggest hits ever is a cover of landslide like yes it's, it's the weird you know it's um but yeah the the that 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 kind of fuzzy you know 12 different guitars each doing something kind of slightly different um harmonizing with each other um almost almost like a a rock orchestra um and and billy corgan actually recorded all of those tracks i mean yeah. that was like that was like always like i know that was always like a big problem within the band is that he would record he would record everything himself and not let them do anything except for the drums yeah uh, well, no. we'll get into the drama a little bit later and now let's get into some music. First up, we have the quintessential Smashing Pumpkins song, Cherub Rock. This is a live performance from their sound check for their 1993 appearance on Saturday Night Live. Yes, Saturday Night Live was once good for something. Enjoy.
back. That was the Smashing Pumpkins with Cherub Rock from their 1993 appearance on Saturday Night Live. Speaking of uh, the drama, the Smashing Pumpkins, if they're not known for their music, they're known for their backstage issues. And you uh, mentioned before the break, one of them is that when they were recording um, Siamese Dream, their their breakthrough album from 1993, um, Billy Corgan did all the instruments on it. Basically, he yeah. he played the guitar, he played the bass. Uh, we should say the Smashing Pumpkins originally: Billy Corgan, uh, James Eha, Darcy Retsky, and Jimmy uh, Chamberlain. Mm. Now, Billy Corgan, for the most part, is the cr- leading creative voice of the band. Even though, of course, all of them have made their contributions, but for their most famous kind of record. Um, it was bi- basically just Billy and Jimmy because, yeah. and now there's been a lot of rumors about why this is. Now, according to Billy Corrigan, it was not his call. It was actually Butch Vig who um, yeah. produced the album. He says just he said just straight up, James and Darcy can't play well enough to finish <laughs> this album in time, so you uh, need to do it and obviously james and darcy felt some kind of way about it and they even talked to the press about it and while at the same time billy corgan was going through you know uh suicide depression weight gain writer's block all this stuff it was a very tumultuous time for the band one of uh many but in the end it produced this you know really groundbreaking amazing uh album that even for what the strange thing for me is the people who usually will say like oh billy corgan's the egomaniac who fucked up the band their favorite album is always siamese dream the one yeah. where he was you know in completely in control yeah i mean siamese dream is it really is one of the albums that uh from my childhood that still holds up today like absolutely perfectly like i mean top to bottom it it is incredibly incredibly listenable um you know there's other albums that i used to love um that just don't hold up as well like i mean a lot of the soundgarden stuff doesn't hold up as well uh some of the alice in chain stuff doesn't hold up as well uh but siamese dream like if it came out today i'm convinced would be a hit record like I'm, I'm i'm absolutely convinced that the kids would love it yeah there's so much stuff i go back to and listen to where i think even if i love it now i couldn't see it really like taking off but siamese dream it just has is just such a, a always modern yeah sound to it uh maybe part of it is because it's really loud <laughs> and everything's yeah. really loud now but yeah there's always something about there's something about it that's just uh, timeless. I actually started, you know, playing guitar and trying to learn, uh, some of the songs and just playing, like, I'm not any, any good. I got carpal tunnel, but just playing like the one chord that Billy Corgan uses, he calls it the pumpkin chord. And like, mm. as soon as you hear it, it's like, oh, that's magic. Like that, yeah. like that's a magical thing he came up with. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the um, his ability to, uh, to harmonize uh, multiple instruments in interesting ways uh, and create these little um, these little rhythm melodies. I mean, I, I I think he's one of the one of the great rhythm guitar players of all time. I mean, the the little intricacies that he throws in, um, little playful melodies. I mean, he's not just playing chords. He's 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 really creating. Um, He's really creating something else. I mean, and that, and that was one thing that was like really unique to them. I mean, it wasn't like, um, you know, Nirvana is sort of a, has like a very significant uh, sort of signature style, meaning 
you know, they would do like these power chords and then kind of like a lullaby type verse um, thrown in there. But the pumpkins, it was really like uh, in Billy Corgan style, it was really like uh, creating um, these riffs uh, that he would sing over and they would interplay perfectly with his sort of very odd voice. Cause yeah. that's like also one thing that you can't, you can't get away from when you, when you're talking about the smashing pumpkins, it's like Billy Corgan does have a very strange and unique sing, singing voice. And it's almost like he created this musical sound to take, to fit perfectly with, with his strange voice. Up next, we have an acoustic performance of Disarm from the Siamese Dream album. This was this took place in 1993 at VPRO Studios in the Netherlands. was an acoustic rendition of Disarm 
from 1993 in the Netherlands at VPRO Studios. The whole recording is very good, very clear. I would definitely recommend checking it out on archive.org. Tons of Smashing Pumpkin stuff up on there. Tons of live shows um, because they were pretty free with allowing people uh, to record the live shows. So it's all up there. So, Nando, before the break, you mentioned, you know, Billy Corgan's infamous voice. And a lot of the people, you know, when they hear the Smashing Pumpkins for the first time, they're like, oh, he's so whiny. But once you get into it, like you've you there's just something about the passion behind the especially in the early albums i actually think now he has improved his singing so much that it's detrimental to the music in a lot of ways because he's like a really actually a good singer now and so it feels like less emotional now oh yeah i mean the metallica fans complain about the same thing that james hetfield has learned how to sing and now and now it sucks you know like <laughs> um, like you you go to their when you go to one of their live shows and he's like a beautiful singer now and it's like that's not that's not metallica that's not supposed <laughs> that's not what that's supposed to be he's supposed to fucking yell into the microphone um and uh yeah i mean the, the with the pumpkins smashing pumpkins you can't um you can't understand it without that kind of when his voice kind of breaks, you know, when he yeah. really, and, it, and then it does, he doesn't quite get there and it just breaks. Um, and it, and it, and it creates that sort of raspy whiny thing, which sounds terrible when you describe it, but it actually, he kind of makes it work somehow. I mean, it, 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 it contributes to that unique sound. I mean, if you look, think about all the other grunge, uh, the, the other major grunge acts, I mean, Eddie Vedder is like an incredible singer. Yeah. So, so is Lane Staley from House yeah. of Chains. It's an unbelievable vocalist. And Chris Cornell was an unbelievable yes. vocalist. <laughs> like these guys were all like virtuoso singers that could be doing, you know, professional studio work um as vocalists um no one's gonna ever gonna hire billy corgan (laughs) to sing background on their album for any for any by any stretch of the imagination yet he was able to create a sound that fit with that voice yeah i would actually recommend if you're you know old school grunge head and want kind of a good uplifting feeling from youtube go and watch the vocal coaches watch like a chris cornell uh, oh. and they're and they love it they're like oh my really? god yeah they're and or lane staley like they like i've have never such, seen this it's such a fun thing to find on youtube it, re- it really gives you a good feeling like oh yeah i was this kind of you know i i was on to something yeah I, I understand vocals even though i listen to rock music all the time yeah yeah i did not know that i mean that's that i gotta i gotta look that up because that that sounds like it would be right up my alley. Yeah. Uh, so you, we mentioned a little bit the live performances of Smashing Pumpkins. Mm-hmm. How many times have you seen them live? I've actually only seen Billy Corgan solo oh. once. Oh wow! Wow! What, what was it? The... Was not very good. Oh, it wasn't. Which tour was it? I mean, this was. I gotta say, this was in like two thousand. I want to say it was like in two thousand and nine, two thousand ten, something like that. Was that on the Future Embrace tour? I think so. That was in Billy Corgan's uh, kind of electronic uh, side yes. album, which I actually like a lot. Of, I kind of wanted to go to those concerts, but it's very different from the Smashing Pumpkins. It's much, yes. it's much it's synth heavy. It's like, it was well, synth heavy. He was also like incredibly angry and like um, uh, <laughs> just um, <laughs> getting angry at the at the audience. Uh, um, uh, but yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, it, it's almost it's almost hard to to say. I've been to a smashing because it, it it didn't it wasn't anything like that. I mean, he, 
you know, it was, it was like you said, like all electronic music and, uh, which is fine. I mean, like it's, it, it shows growth and, um, and, 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 and a, and a desire to sort of explore new avenues of music, but it's just, it is also like a tragedy. I'm like, you're such a great guitar player. I did. I like, I love you. Like, <laughs> yeah. Just give me some guitar, please. Yeah. Uh, I've seen them twice. I saw them once in new Orleans at Voodoo Fest, big festival, had a good time. It was during the zeitgeist tour. That's mm. not my favorite album, but actually live is pretty hard hitting. Like I like, mm. I enjoyed hearing those songs live more than, um, listening to the album and then i got to see him a little bit later um in new york where it was more kind of like a greatest hits uh mm. sort of thing and that and that concert uh, was really fun really blew me away i like i i wish i had you know seen the original lineup these were both you know the post reunion um yeah. tours but and the only chance i realized i would have had was i think when i was 14 a couple hours they played a couple hours away in my state i lived in baton rouge and they played in lafayette and oh, wow. so if i could have found a, a way over there i could have seen the original lineup but um it just wasn't meant to be yeah, when I was growing up in my, I, I grew up in Miami, and when I was growing up in Miami, it was really hard to see a lot of the mainstream uh, rock acts because there was some sort of dispute between Ticketmaster and the sort of main venues in Miami, um, and uh, they just they just didn't bring any of the big acts. They would all go to West Palm Beach, which was uh, at least an hour and a half away. Um, so when I was a kid, it was just much harder. It was it was much harder to like you know convince your parents to drive up to West Palm Beach. Uh, to go to a concert or something rather than, you know, if it was, if, if they'd been playing in like, you know, Dolphin Stadium or where the Heat played or something like, but that was for like a four or five year span of my sort of most formative years. Uh. It was like unbelievably difficult to see uh, a lot of these big mainstream rock acts, oh, uh, which good. is a shame. Yeah. Up next is another live acoustic version, this this time of Tonight Tonight from Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Now, you'll notice if you heard Tonight Tonight before, especially if you heard it, a live rendition of it, that this is a later version of it. This was recorded in 2018 uh, once Billy uh, changed up his vocal stylings. So it's a quite different uh, version of the song besides the acousticness uh, of it. So enjoy. Change the yarn, I'm stuck in bed. 
That was tonight. Tonight from a Billy Corgan solo uh, performance for 2018. So you, Nando, you just mentioned, you know, about the changing style of the Smashing Pumpkins, and that's something that happens to all bands, you know. Eventually, mm-hmm. I think the big turn for the Smashing Pumpkins that was a very big deal at the time, because this was when like people actually sold a lot of records and like the music industry was a thing. After Melancholy and Infant Sadness, you know, this huge hit rock album had a lot of diverse stuff on it, but it's primarily remembered for its, you know, kind of heavy rock songs. And then 1979, which I think is a song that's gotten bigger and bigger uh, over time, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's a little bit of a quieter song. But then they put out Adore, the Adore album, uh, such a departure from what they had done before. And I remember, I remember, you know, when they were talking about it, like how it's going to be, you know, this kind of different um, electronic album, um, electronica 10 album is what they call it. Electronica was the word at the time, 1998. And I remember, you know, getting it coming home, listening to it as you know this high schooler looking to rock out and just being like what the fuck what the fuck and, and putting it away yeah. and not listening to it for like a year 
Well, I mean, it's 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 interesting because that that was a window into a different era of culture and music, which was kind of the, the pre digital music era. And it, it, I, this is something that young people really struggle to understand. But back then, you listened to one genre of music. You did not <laughs> yeah. listen to multiple. There was like, now everyone's a, a polymath when it comes to music. Everyone's yeah. like, yeah, I listened to like the new, uh, you know, the new uh, Kendrick Lamar album, but like, I also like like the new, uh, you know, like Vampire Weekend album. And like, that was like unthinkable <laughs> yeah. in 1997. Like you, you did not, like if you were listening to Smashing Pumpkins, you were not going to buy the new, uh, like uh, the new Puff Daddy album yeah. or whatever. You know, like that just wasn't a thing. It just did not exist. Um, so it, it, had the Smashing Pumpkins been popular today with, you know, an album like Melancholy and the Infinite Status and then produced an album that was like, just completely electronic, they would actually probably be celebrated and people would be more, audiences would be more used to that, more used to uh, um, be uh, listening to different genres of music and different kinds of sounds. But back then, I mean, I remember when I, when I, when I was young, like if, if, if an album wasn't like a guitar rock album, like I was just not interested at yeah, all. Yeah. It was part of your identity. You know, like it really defined a, a huge amount of your overall identity. I mean, if you think about the like old TV shows uh, of high schoolers, like I mean, it was like there was like the, the the guys with long hair, and they were like into rock, and then there was like the punks, and then there was like the you know the hippies who were into like Dave Matthews and yeah. <laughs> and, and Grateful Dead, and it's just like you really were defined by the type of music you liked. So if you liked Smashing Pumpkins in Siamese Dream and Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness it was like your brain almost exploded once they started doing electronic music, which whereas today that wouldn't be as big of a deal. Yeah. And you know, Billy Corgan has actually gone back and said, you know, our mistake was calling it electronic album. What we should have called it is an acoustic album because you get a freebie on an acoustic album. You can do whatever. Totally. You can. If it's an acoustic album, it doesn't matter if it's right. it, if it's if it's crap. That was back then. That was like your code for like, all right. I'm, I'm a serious a, musician. Yes. And you can do whatever the fuck you want. And yeah. then you can come back and do your commercial stuff. And yeah. that's fine. But the Adore thing really hurt them. And they also like had a lot, you know, drama. That was when they had to, you know, uh, 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 when their keyboardist died and they mm. had to uh, remove moved jimmy chamberlain from the band yeah. because of his drug addiction billy corgan went through a divorce as well and his mother mm. died and he put out you know this really you know sad but very beautiful album and i go back and listen to it and it just it still blows me away kind of similar to the way siamese dream does but it's not because mm. of the layering but because but they it's like a much it's, it's a loud quiet album at the same mm. time yeah. like it's very you know like the there's not a lot of sound going on but when it comes it's very enveloping it's bass heavy it wraps you up so i still really i really like have come to appreciate um adore as an album over time yeah and and that happened a lot back then um again it was a, it was a different different time but that that happened a lot where a, a band's album that would like initially flop big time would then would then become kind of like a retroactive classic. Um, that, that I mean, I remember, like you know, the, the classic example of that is Weezer and Pinkerton. Their follow up to the Blue Album, which yeah. was like a, seen as like a giant flop at the time, and like you know, it sent Rivers Cuomo into depression um, and all that stuff. But like now, Weezer fans say it's their best album. Yeah, you know? like <laughs> it's that 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 was the thing that happened a lot back then because. 
again, because I think of, I think that audiences just weren't, weren't as trained um, to absorb so many different kinds of music. It, it really was like really rare for a person to, to be a true um, polymath when it came to uh, different genres and different sounds. And up next, we have Bullet with Bullifier Wings from a 1995 performance on French television. No, it is not the world of vampire. No, it is not rat in the cage. It is Bullet with butterfly wings. The world is a
And that was Bullet with Butterfly Wings from 1995 off, of course, Melancholy and Infinite Sadness. Okay, elephant in the room, Nando. We got to talk yeah. about it. Yeah. Billy, what's the deal with Billy Corgan's politics? <laughs> okay, so here I have like a, I have kind of like a uh, armchair hot take uh, uh, on this kind of thing. I mean, if people don't know, Billy Corgan has become kind of this really, really bizarre uh all, basically alt writer. I mean, he was on I, he was on Alex Jones. Yeah, I um, I I, per, I prefer the term paranoid libertarian because yeah, he, that's the, that's a good yeah because I don't think he's as far right on like the cultural stuff aside from being just he's mad about PC culture like a lot of Gen Xers are because their whole mm-hmm. thing like even for as a liberal was like being able to say what you want and do what you want. That was like a progressive thing at the time. And, you know, for them, like having, you know, be told, you know, actually you can't say that word. You can't do that word. It was like, what are you talking about, man? Like, well, let us explain it to you. But, you know, when you got a lot of money and you're insulated from that, you just um, complain about PC culture on your Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. So I, in general, the, the Gen Xers and 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 the 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 voices of that generation um, were reacting to a dominance in the culture from the 1980s of basically like right wing moralism and consumerism, right? I mean, that was the whole you know the 80s was like this unbridled kind of uh, consumerist culture, and, and plus married with like Reaganism, right? So. They were protesting that, but it was at, it was at a time when um, there was no left. Like there was no left. Like this was the end of history. This was like it, 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Like I don't know. Like that that was the, the the period of the end of history where there was no left. Right. So these these sort of disaffected, uh, mostly young men, mostly men, young men um, who were disgusted by the dominant culture at the time um uh revolted in a in a way that was purely on aesthetic grounds right yeah. um it was what you wore it was what you um you know how you consumed media it was like what you thought about um right wing pieties of you know you can't you can't use bad words you can't use blah 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 you know but it was devoid of any sort of political content yeah right they didn't they did not have a very sort of developed politics um and that that's a very dangerous thing when you're kind of revolting without without a politics to sort of ground your worldview um and that's what happened to a lot of the gen xers um like i'm convinced if kurt cobain had not killed himself uh um he'd be like a he'd be like a, he'd probably be like a similar uh a similar thing to billy corgan because he was not a very political guy um and and it's also why so many of these guys succumb to drugs because they they couldn't square that they couldn't square that that round peg in a square hole yeah. or whatever. You know, they 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 sensed that that something was wrong, but they didn't have any answers to it. They they and they all struggled with their own success with selling out, yeah. which was like a huge nineties thing, right? Thing, yeah. Um, People forget whereas, that like you were not yeah. supposed to make the most money. That was a you bad weren't. thing. Like uh, Billy Corgan in particular got a lot of shit for he got called a careerist because yeah. he would actually care about his career and his contracts and stuff. That's what Cheryl Brock's about. Yeah. Right. Um, that's like what that song is about is him like, you know, telling those guys to, to fuck off. Um, 
But now the dominant culture is, is basically liberalism. Like liberalism is dominant, even though the right is in power yeah. in the culture, liberalism yeah. is dominant. It's not, it's not the sort of Tipper Gore pieties. It's not the, 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 the Christian right has lost the culture war in, in, you know, like you don't, you don't get outraged over, you know, uh, sex on TV or anything like that, you know, like, so the dominant culture is sort of a progressive liberal one. And the, these Gen Xers, all they have is the tools to rebel yeah. against whatever the dominant culture is, right? Um, so for a guy like Billy Corgan, when he was rebelling against sort of that right-wing piety uh, culture of the late 80s or early 90s, when he was a young sort of teen in the suburbs, now he's rebelling against sort of liberal dominant PC culture, which is dominant. I mean, it is like in Hollywood and everywhere in music, everyone is kind of agreed that that's the dominant culture. And so his only, his only reaction uh, is to, is to basically be like, no, fuck that. I'm, yeah. I'm not, I'm not on board with that at all. Yeah. He's, he's, so. that's, I mean, that's almost everything he says is about no, fuck you. I don't have to be part of the system yeah. and the thing. And it's just the system has changed. And so his yeah. cut, but his reaction has not. Um, and one thing I also, you know, note about, you know, a lot of musicians from that era, because that was when like, uh, you could become a famous musician without having rich parents. And oh, Billy yeah. Corgan comes from like a lower middle, uh, lower working class, you know, background. He was not a rich kid. And I think a lot of the artists from that day are. And so when you come from, you know, that working class background and you actually bust your ass and work and win at capitalism, I think you end up believing in it. Mm. And oh, then, yeah. you know, kind of like saying, wait, fuck you why should i pay taxes i actually <laughs> yeah. did work hard yeah. to get where i'm at i saw all those other bands they pissed away why should i pay for you know them and their health care i i was i was the one who didn't fuck up i worked hard i came from nothing i think yeah. you know if people who come from you know a background like corgan's can be very susceptible susceptible to believing in that home hype because they won at the game yeah and I, you know, I'm, I'm, this is, this is probably my bias speaking, but I, cause I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan and I always have been, they've always been my favorite band, but, uh, they were, they were one of the few political bands of the era. I mean, they, they, they did have, have an actual developed yeah. politics and they didn't, they, they were the only ones that really didn't have any, didn't succumb to drugs. Um, Eddie Vedder, uh, read a lot of Howard Zinn. Uh, he campaigned for Ralph Nader in 2000. Uh, he's a Bernie bro today. They fought Ticketmaster um, at the height of their fame. They refused to do uh, MTV videos after Jeremy. Um, they were kind of a political band. And, and I think that that was the only reason why they were able to process their success in a way that was much more healthy um, than, than these other guys who just like didn't know what to do with it. Right. And they didn't know how to, they didn't know how to process it. They, they, they either turned to drugs or fighting each other or, um, or, or just becoming kind of like insane, kooky uh, Alex Jones types. Yeah, because I, I remember um, there's there's a quote from Billy Corgan back in the day where he said, "I'm never going to tell you who to vote for." And, mm. and, you know, at the time you might think, oh, that's, you know, kind of a cool thing. Uh, you know, that's kind of a cool badge. You know, I'm a keep my hands off, you know, thing. I'm just an artist. I'm not going to. But inevitably he ended up 
becoming in a lot of ways still political right like you just can't avoid it you can pretend that you can but you you can't avoid politics especially if you're going to be someone who is a celebrity in the culture and still trying to make commentary about the united states because he like he has a song called united states but it's a very like it's it's a very confused sort of Mm. anti-establishment establishment sort of stance without you know a real hook uh to it yeah. or anything to latch on it's just kind of the establishment is bad and that's you know kind of it yeah i mean it, it, it used to be uh, and, and you alluded to this that this this sort of anti-politics stance was a was seen as a sort of edgy progressive thing right um and uh and, and transgression was seen as a edgy progressive thing you know like the the politics of transgression and um that used to be kind of a broadly speaking thing of the left of the era to be transgressive to be provocative to be um and that's that's changed completely that's completely flipped right now the politics of transgression are one uh, are on the right and and not on the left on the left is not transgressive at all today which shows you that transgression in and of itself has no political yes. content right um it it's 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 meaningless um really like from a political standpoint but um if you learned that at a certain point, like that, that the, the thing that was cool and edgy and kind of progressive was to be transgressive, then the only, the only way, the only avenue you have to do that today is on the right. Um, and, uh, and I think that's like a lot of what you see. Like, I, again, that's why I'm convinced Kurt Cobain would be, would be like a right winger. <laughs> Some people are going to get mad. You were saying, uh, people- I, I look forward to your tweets. Uh, <laughs> But like, because again, like he was a transgressive figure. I mean, he was genuinely transgressive. I mean, that's why he was able to be so successful um, at destroying all the entire edifice of glam rock. Right. Um, uh, And like hair metal and all that stuff. Uh, And, and because he was, because he had this sort of transgressive instinct Um, and the left is just not transgressive at all today. It's just not at all. Like there is, there is a, there is a sort of more, um, you know, there is a, a desire to be um, not provocative. It's like the complete opposite. Um, so that would that would sort of annoy someone who came from that with that upbringing. That era, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Up next, we have personally a song that's been my favorite Smashing Pumpkin song at times. This is off the Machina album. Eye of the Morning. This was a performance at Live at Music Plus. This is one of my favorite recorded live performances from them. It's, it's in a very nice studio. The film quality is pretty good. It's all on YouTube. Definitely recommend if you want a, a, some good live pumpkins to check this one out.
And that was Eye of the Morning from 2000 Live at Music Plus. We're, we're, we're coming to the end of our journey across, you know, the history of the Smashing Pumpkins. So now that I want to ask you, what, at the end of the day, do you think is going to be kind of the legacy of the Smashing Pumpkins as a band? Because, you know, they're not, I, I have to say, I don't think people really right now have as much appreciation for them and what they did as they kind of should because of the you know the clickbait articles about billy corgan being goofy or mm. or the reunion concert where darcy didn't come back i think now they're more more known for the drama than mm. the music even though everybody knows 1979 but i, I hope that kind of changes at some point i don't know what will happen it will actually have to be something like billy corgan will have to die exactly before you know people go back and look to the music as has happened with a lot of his colleagues sadly enough um only nine inch nails i think nine inch nails is like the only band from that era who somehow was able to escape that thing i remember this Reddit post that haunts me to this day, where it was announced that Nine I love Inch- the idea of being haunted by a Reddit post. Yeah, where <laughs> Nine Inch Nails announced that they were going to go on tour. I think with Soundgarden. I think it was with Soundgarden. Mm. I, I went to that. I went to that concert. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And I went to that of, tour. And one of the replies was like, "Soundgarden? What the fuck is this? The '90s? Nine Inch Nails started in the '80s." They're as yeah. old as any of these other bands, yeah. but this person had convinced themselves that the Nine Inch Nails somehow, some way, were like of a different era. I, I yeah. don't know. Yeah, well, it, you know, the Trent Reznor has been really good about reinventing himself. Uh, you know, now he's basically like the the sound the movie TV show soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, guy. I mean. He, I know he's doing the, uh, the Watchmen. You know, show, yeah, show that you guys are a big fan of uh, <laughs> Watchmen. Um, but in terms of the Smashing Pumpkins legacy, I mean, I I genuinely think that they hold up uh, and will hold up much better than a lot of their contemporaries. Um, I I do think that you know a lot of those grunge bands, certainly outside of the big four. Um, like have just completely fallen by the wayside um, and no one remembers them. Um, I mean, guys like Candlebox and Cracker and these <laughs> yeah. guys. Um, but even, even, even someone like an, even bands like Alice in Chains and Soundgarden um, don't hold up as well yeah. uh, as, as they did at the time. And they don't seem as, as cool as they did at the time. Whereas the Smashing Pumpkins over time, I like them more and more. And I, the, the more I list, like I can listen to them now um and and they still feel fresh to me. They still feel um, relevant uh, musically in a way that these other bands just really do not. Um, and and, it, and it's crazy to think about how huge they were. Uh, I mean, Melancholy. Like I, I didn't know that Melancholy and the Infants was the highest selling double album of all time, but it doesn't surprise me. I mean, that album was everywhere. I mean, the, that the, the MTV VMAs. That year, I remember it was like yeah, all, all tonight and yeah, yeah. all smashing was tonight, 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 nineteen seventy nine, all that stuff. Um, but I, I do think that from, history will be kind to them in that sense. I mean, unless Billy Corgan does something truly insane, um, I they, think he's they, too old to do anything. Really, yeah, too shocking again. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Nando. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Where can people find you? 
you know, on Twitter, like everyone else at Nando Arvila, you know, hit me up. Uh, I look forward to your uh, hate tweets about. <laughs> I, I do like Nirvana. Don't get me wrong. I like Nirvana. <laughs> I like Kurt Cobain. Don't uh, don't don't. <laughs> <laughs> Don't twist my words. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, we're going to close out with the Smashing Pumpkins' uh, most popular song, according to streaming platforms. This is 1979 from Melancholy and Infinite Sadness, but it's a performance of the current lineup. It's from their reunion tour in 2018. Billy Corrigan brought Jimmy Chamberlain back, kept Jeff Schroeder, who is the uh, new guitarist for the reformed version of the band. He also was able to reconcile his differences with uh, James Eha. Darcy Retsky, unfortunately, uh, has not come back yet. We're still crossing our fingers on that. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Struggle Session Radio, Smashing Pumpkins. Have a good one.
Like what you hear, want to hear more? Check us out at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.plus or struggle session.substack.com for all our public episodes, commercial free, as well as hundreds of bonus episodes. Thank you to all our listeners for holding us down five years strong.